Well, good morning, Redemption Arcadia. So glad that you're here this with, with us this morning or joining us online. Appreciate you participating with us in this ministry of Jesus Christ. A few of us were talking this morning about that verse in Lamentations that says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the thought that we had this morning was that God's love is so consistent in our lives, yet sometimes we can grow tired and, and grow weary of receiving that love in a fresh and new way. And so sometimes we wake up in the morning and we think, is, is God's love really present here with us today? Is it, are his mercies really renewing us this morning? And my hope today is that we can sing a new song to the Lord in a way that allows for him to renew us that each morning he would renew his church. So would you stand together? And we're going to worship the Lord. Several of these songs this morning are songs that, that are not new songs, but we'd like to sing them as though they're new, with the idea that God renews us every morning in his mercy and his love. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together. into order who makes the orphan a son and daughter the king of glory the king of glory who rules the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance the king of glory the king above all kings this is a
sacrificing for all that you've done for me. So even those lines that he brings our chaos into order, that he makes an, an orphan, a son or daughter, I need to preach that good news to myself every day. So God, your mercies are new every morning. Let's sing this. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquers the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. you've done for me. Amen. Amen. Let's read this together out of Psalm 145 and proclaim his goodness and his faithfulness this morning anew. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Amen. God, we praise you for your faithfulness. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will see of the goodness of God. All my life you have been 
been so, so good with every breath that I am able, I will see of the goodness of God. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire in darkest night. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God all my life. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good with every breath that I am able. I will sing of the goodness of God. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Sing it again, your goodness. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Sing all my life. All my life you have been faithful All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able I will sing of the goodness of God Sing it again, all my life all my life you have been faithful All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able I will sing of the goodness of God I will sing the goodness of God. I will see of the goodness of God. There's an old chorus. Let's sing it anew this morning. He has shown thee, O oh, man. 
the Lord requires of thee, he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Let's sing it again. He has shown thee. He has shown thee. O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, he has shown thee. O to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God but to do justly but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God, you are so faithful. Remind us of your faithfulness um, in the service today. Um, thank you for who you are. Amen. Four through sixth graders, um, join us next week during the 1045 service for class time. Um, and take a second right now to, to greet each other and say hi. Man, y'all are, y'all are too quick for me. Um, well, I'm Caleb Wiseman. I'm the creative arts director here at Redemption Arcadia. It's so good to see all of you this morning. It's so, man, it's been so great to see all of you guys back since lockdown. We, were, we spent several months filming the services in our lobby back there, and the life that you guys bring is so important and so special to our church. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the creative things that we're doing as a church. First, we are looking for more creative people, always. We always need more creative people, so feel free to shoot me or Stephanie an email, and we'll get you plugged in and connected to what we're doing with our creative team. Being creative is such a big part of what we do here at Redemption Arcadia. God calls us to be creative because God himself is creative. He created us in his image, and it's so sweet to get to be able to create in his likeness. So if you have any interest in that at all, please let me know. As well, we have a Hope Women's Center drive that we have going on. And for July, the things that you can bring to that are uh, personal care items. So if you have any of those, feel free to bring those all throughout July. Please stand for the reading of God's word. 
Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax and our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, Mr. Beamish, thank you. Appreciate that. Good to see you all. Good morning, Arcadia. If you could, um, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5, and uh, you could please turn in your Bibles there. You need a Bible, I think. Uh, well, you need a Bible every Sunday morning, but especially for this study to be able to follow along. It's a narrative, and we're going to read every verse of Nehemiah chapter 5. Um, I, if you're new here, by the way, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be here. Uh, I was not here last week. I got the opportunity to preach out at the Gilbert congregation, and that was uh, uh, interesting and a lot of fun, just a different congregation, and uh, learning a little bit more about uh, that congregation on Sundays. I'm very familiar with it during the week, but not on Sundays. Um, this morning, uh, I, I woke up to more text messages and emails than I ever have, in, I think, in my life. And it was a little concerning to me because if you've been watching the national news and the weather, you know that there have been tornadoes in central Illinois lately. And yesterday, they were actually on a tornado warning, not a watch. And our daughter and son-in-law and, um, and grandchild were spending most of the day in a basement. And so... When I saw that I got so many text messages this morning, I was very nervous and anxious about that. And I opened them up, and uh, of course, it wasn't anything about tornadoes in Illinois. It was all about how the suns were now up three to one. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I just, again, I, I'm, I, I'm your pastor trying to protect your hearts, okay? And, and you need to understand that this is the perfect scenario for the sons to break your heart, okay? It just really is. And, and one of the reasons is because they are playing a team from L.A., which would be like sort of a double heartbreak, right? You all hate me, I know. That's wonderful. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see who's right in the end. This is reverse psychology. If there are any sons out there listening to this, this is reverse psychology. Anyway, um, all right, so... Honestly, that's the end of the more lighthearted stuff this morning. Um, this is a heavy message this morning. And so I, I hope that uh, God has prepared your hearts for this, and, and I hope that I'm able to communicate it in a way that moves me out of the way so that you hear from God in this message. In other words, uh, as, as I work on preparing for this message, and I pray and I invite the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and direct me in this, my prayer is that it will be specifically from God for the people of God and not uh, tainted by my own bias 
Now, those of you who understand the human condition, there's going to be a little bit of that in there. But I'll leave that up to you to decide which part that is. So um, this is going to be a heavy message. This is Nehemiah chapter 5 talking about uh, some great injustices that are going on in Jerusalem, even as they are doing God's work. So uh, one of the things I like to do with these uh, stories in the Old Testament, these historical, real historical stories in the Old Testament, is to bring us up to date in terms of the context. So I'm going to do that again in case you haven't been here or you weren't here last week or you're unfamiliar with the story. So the Jews in the 7th and 6th century B.C., ended up in Babylon in what's known as the Great Babylonian Exile. And they were there approximately 70 years. But in 539, when the Medo-Persian army came in and sacked Babylon, they breached the walls of Babylon, uh, King Cyrus uh, from Persia had a different idea about what to do with conquered people. And so he told the Jews that they could go back to Jerusalem. In fact, he encouraged them to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, and, and restart their life there. Um, understanding that it had been 70 years since they had moved to Babylon. So the Jews who were there had kind of figured out how to survive and even thrive in Babylon. So moving back to Jerusalem was a great sacrifice, but many did it because they knew that was God's land for them. It was their homeland. It was that land of their forefathers. And they felt a, a loyalty and a commitment and a covenant with God to, to go back. But not all of them went. Some stayed in Babylon. Still some others decided to move further east to the city of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire, which is right in the middle of present-day Iran, irony, uh, where Nehemiah, where we find Nehemiah at the beginning of this story, he is the king's cupbearer. And the king at the time, uh, this would be 445 BC when we start the story, the king at the time was Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah was his cupbearer. Essentially, in many ways, he was kind of the number two in the land. Although he wasn't Persian, he was Jewish, probably had never been to Jerusalem, uh, but nevertheless understood his ancestry and, and uh, you know, his people and God, and he was a faithful uh, person of God. And so uh, the Jews had already returned by then, and by 516 B.C., they had rebuilt the temple but their life there had been very, very hard for them. The economy was challenging. Like I said, many Jews had figured out how to make a better living in Babylon, but they wanted to be in God's land and building God's house. The neighboring uh, nations and people around Jerusalem were very unhappy that the Jews were being repatriated back to Jerusalem. And so they kept attacking the Jews and kept preventing them from building a wall around the city. So they moved back in 538. They got the temple built by 516, but they could not get the wall built around the city. And the wall was very important to ancient cities. It was important for protection and defense. It was important for the economy. It was important for distinction. So Nehemiah, again, a Jew who is living in Persia, serving a Persian king, hears of the distress. And eventually, he's able to talk to the Persian king about it. And the king is sympathetic. Even though he, and I think this is why he's sympathetic. He loves Nehemiah. He thinks Nehemiah's the best. But, and so he's sympathetic to Nehemiah's challenge that this wall hadn't been built. And his kin had come to him and said, we need help getting this wall re rebuilt. Maybe somebody from the outside uh, could help. And so the king sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem 
with everything he needs to rebuild the wall. He sends him with all of the natural resources that he would need. He sends him with the proper authoritative papers to be able to get through all the checkpoints, uh, also letting people know that he is under the king's authority to do this. And he even gives him a large military escort just to help make sure people understood that he was doing this under the king's uh, authority. And so finally, work on the wall begins in 444 BC, more than 70 years after the temple had been completed. Work on the wall begins, and they make great progress until these two guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, come and start hassling them. And we looked at that a little bit at the end of chapter 2, and then we looked at that in full uh, yesterday, or last week, uh, in chapter 4. Well, Nehemiah takes care of that threat, even though the threat comes up again next week in in chapter 6. But Nehemiah takes care of the threat in chapter 4, and they finish the wall. But now a new challenge arises. So here's how I want you to look at today. There was an external enemy and challenge, and that was chapter 4. And the Jews, under Nehemiah's leadership and God's provision, had pretty much taken care of that challenge for the time being, but now we see an internal enemy and an internal challenge. And that too needs to be taken care of. And we should conclude that part of the reason that there are so many poor people now in Jerusalem, that's the challenge, it's the poor people in Jerusalem who are now being taken advantage of and oppressed by their brethren by their brother and sister Jews who had money, they're being oppressed by them, we should conclude that part of the reason that there are so many poor people in Jerusalem is specifically because there hadn't been a wall for so many years. If there's no wall, there's no protection. If there's no protection, there's no reliable commerce. And if there's no reliable commerce, you have no ability to build wealth and become upwardly mobile, to put it into present terms. In the meantime, those who had money and who had returned, families that had returned from Babylon with lots of money, were able to use that money to oppress others. Now, just here you go. you got to hear this before we go on, okay? This was likely not their intention, the people who had the money. It was not their intention necessarily to oppress the poor. They didn't wake up in the morning and say, what can I do to oppress the poor? They didn't do that. But it was the result of their practices, which they saw as legal and as part of what they needed to do in order to continue earning income. But they were oppressing the poor. And it was something that God was upset about and Nehemiah was upset about. They saw it as unjust, and so Nehemiah speaks up about it. And there's one other reason that there were so many poor, and this, is, this reason is painted with irony, I think. Those who were already likely in trouble financially because of the poor economic conditions of the previous 70 years were also the same ones who were foregoing their vocations and their crops and their earning opportunities to do what? To build the wall. So they left what meager income they could have in order to go participate in making sure that the the wall would get built. So we see tremendous loyalty and covenant and commitment. Somebody once said, you know, you can't follow God while looking for a discount. Can't follow God while looking for a discount. Um, Reading 
really all of the Bible if you want a biblical perspective on prosperity, but especially reading this story, this is like the anti-prosperity gospel. This is, this is the exact opposite. This is a chapter where I don't think prosperity gospel preachers would like to go to if they're going to tell you, look, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and give us money and God is going to flood you with money. It just doesn't work that way. You can't follow God while looking for a discount, number one. And number two, sometimes following God takes great sacrifice and even sacrifice that you don't even expect to necessarily make. That's just the truth. Now, before we get into chapter 5, and I know some of you are like, are we going to get to chapter 5? Yes, we are. A note about the chronology. I said this in the very first message. The chronology in the book of Nehemiah is not perfect because the author, who is ultimately God, working through an editor or a redactor to put together um, information from both Ezra and Nehemiah's journals and then trying to fill some narrative gaps. But God was directing this uh, redactor or this editor to make sure that the reader of this document understands God's priorities and not ours. So many of us, especially in, in this sort of Western uh, 21st century culture, we want a perfect chronology. We want a linear chronology. Otherwise, we question it, and it's hard to understand. Well, many of the, many of the writings in the Gospels aren't perfectly linear, and I mentioned that. Neither is Nehemiah. It's not perfectly linear, although we don't exactly know how uh, it isn't. It's mostly linear, but there are places, and chapter 5 is one of those places. So uh, chapter 5 might describe a time right after the wall is finished. So that would be fall of 444 B.C. Or some have argued that chapter 5 actually belongs chronologically after chapter 13, like 12, 15, or 20 years later. I, here's where I land, and then I won't say anything else about the chronology, but here's where I, I, you know, you have to study this stuff. You have to be ready for the questions, but here's where I land. I think that the first 13 verses of chapter 5 are, in fact, right after the wall is completed, fall of 444, but that verses 14 through 19 actually are verses that come years later, at least 12 years um, Later, So that's kind of where I land. So to chapter 5, please have your Bibles out or your Bible apps out. We're going to go verse by verse. Um, sometimes it'll be one verse, sometimes it'll be several at a time. The first verse is just one verse at a time. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Great Bible scholar Matthew Henry writes this. When God's people fight one another... They are neither fighting the real enemy nor getting God's work done. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't a legitimate complaint. I'm not saying that this outcry was illegitimate. It was totally legitimate. It's a legitimate complaint. But it still stands that when God's people decide to drop the gloves with each other, which I believe we have been prone to do in the church's history, that when God's people decide to drop the gloves with, with each other, here's what happens. There's four things. First of all, people who are not a part of the church, people outside of the church, determine that we're no different than they are, so what's the point? That's their perception. What's the point? So what happens is we lose much of the power of the testimony of God that we should have. Here's the second thing. People begin to mock God's people when, 
when God's people fight with each other. And it doesn't really matter what we're fighting about. They're not interested in that. They just, they just know that we're fighting and they begin to mock us. Third, Satan is thrilled because it makes his plan and his purpose that much easier. And fourth, nothing good gets accomplished because, they're, because we're too busy arguing in order to make a point rather than working to make a difference. Now, here you go. Again, disclaimers. Lots of disclaimers today. It's not that we don't debate in the church. It's not that we don't have differences. But, but, and listen closely to this. This idea that many people in God's church buy into that we can't have a disagreement without rallying factions and posting on social media, that idea is wicked. Paul calls it sin. Read the New Testament letters. It's called sin, and it breaks God's heart. So we have to be careful of this. We have to be careful how we handle those things. So there was a great outcry. This word outcry is the biblical language of the oppressed. People were being oppressed. Whether it was intentional or not doesn't matter. They were being oppressed. And there's a specific mention of the wives who are crying out. So the scholars say that this is likely that they're under a great strain because their husbands are the ones who are off building the wall and they're at home with no income and the bill collectors are still coming. So there are several challenges for these households um, that I've read about. First of all, we know historically that there was a famine during this year as well, which meant that the harvest wasn't very good. So there's this kind of, there's no payday for crops. And, and the wall was being built while that harvest was supposed to be happening. So what little was there wasn't even getting picked. So there was kind of a double economic whammy. Second of all, no wages for those working the wall, like I said. The wall workers had left income to voluntarily help with the wall. And so now what's happening is the creditors of the people were calling and they were stopping by and they were sending emails and they were threatening the people. And the people said, but we're off building the wall. We're off building the wall. And the creditors said, not our problem. You still have an obligation to pay. And oh, by the way, since you didn't pay on time, you have some late fees and the interest rates go higher. So same thing as today. So they began to pawn their goods, their household goods. We see all of this in the, in the verses that follow. When you have to pawn your stuff, that, that never ends well, I found, when you start pawning your stuff. Uh, furthermore, they had tax bills that they couldn't pay. They couldn't pay their taxes. Wait, they didn't have any income. They still had taxes. They were still expected to pay their taxes, and they couldn't pay them, and there was no way to negotiate it down. And then we find in these verses that come the final indignation Many people had to sell family members into slavery because that's what you did back then when you couldn't pay your debts. So we have a mess. So look at verses 2 through 5. I see some long faces. I told you this was going to be heavy today. I warned you. 2 through 5. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet, 
They're saying, our kin are doing this to us, our national brothers and sisters. Yet, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So, let's talk a little bit about money. That's always exciting to talk about in church, isn't it? Can, we, can I get an amen? We're going to talk about money in church? Okay, here's the problem of money. It is a false god for many people. It just is. And by the way, here you go. You need to hear this. It's not a false god for only wealthy people. Money is also a false god for people who don't have it. And sometimes the reason they don't have it is because it's a false god. Money is a false god for many people. Yet, here's the irony. We can't live without money, nor can we do God's work without money. Right? So that's a problem. Um, the problem isn't really money, though. Uh, I've said this before. This is 1 Timothy 6.10, I'm sure, is the most misquoted Bible verse in the world. I hear it everywhere, misquoted. And specifically, people and people on TV who ought to know better saying, the Bible says... Money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It's not what it says. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, what? The love, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. So first of all, let's talk about roots of evil, okay? The root of the evil actually is coming from our hearts. It's not coming from the thing. And our hearts can be drawn to many different things and become a root through other pathways. So the, the love of lust is a root of all sorts of evil. The, the, love of, the love of power is a root of all sorts of evil. The love of status is a root of all sorts of evil. So there's many roots. But the problem is, is that it's one heart, and that's ours. We're the problem. It's so easy to say money is the root of all evil because then we're not responsible. Amen? It's so easy to say that. But that's not what Scripture says. The Scripture says that it's our affection, our orientation to the money that makes it a problem. Matthew 6.24 Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And then there's 1 John chapter 2. This is not the Gospel of John. This is John's first letter that he wrote after the Gospel. And he writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God is not in them. For all that is in the world, and then he kind of quotes Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 6. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, we have an idolatry problem in Jerusalem. That's what's really going on here. There's an idolatry problem in Jerusalem. The wall had been paid for, by the way, by the Persians. The Persians had pretty much paid for the wall, which was nice. That's not the problem. The problem is the inequity and injustice wrought on the people of God by the people of God. 
the injustice wrought on the people of God by the people of God. So I want you to take note of something here. Historians tell us, we've mentioned this, that most of the people who took on the 52-day pro project of building the wall are people who gave up their jobs and income during those 52 days. And they were already living hand to mouth, but they were loyal. And yet, their fellow Jews, their fellow Jews who were their lenders, their landlords, and their employees, employers, some of whom had chosen not to help to build the wall, they were not offering mercy or grace or reason or compassion in the midst of this issue. And this is what frosts Nehemiah. And he goes right at him. In fact, he calls a public assembly to deal with this problem. He calls a public assembly to deal with this problem. We'll see that. And it's not that the people's actions were illegal necessarily, although the Mosaic Law does forbid usury. Usury is interest on the poor, charging interest when you loan money to somebody who's poor, or just unreasonable interest in general. It's not that their actions were illegal, but the fact that there was no empathy towards the people who were under this impression that really frosts Nehemiah. In fact, it could be argued that in these such instances, the Mosaic Law does specifically argue for and compel empathy and compassion. The word compassion literally means to suffer with. So the demands that Nehemiah makes could have been ignored, but thankfully they weren't. And again, it's not that the loans weren't allowed under the Mosaic Law, but loans that oppressed and took advantage of people, yeah, they're a problem. And God's not happy with this. The oppressors embraced the sins of greed and covetousness. Maybe they didn't realize they were, but they were, which are both strictly prohibited by the Ten Commandments. And, and you know, when, when our hearts are set on money and on wealth, we never have enough. Uh, Carl Truman, in his most recent book, writes this, the desire for consumption is never met by procurement and, and possession just never ends. And he's really, I think, just parroting Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, where King Solomon writes, the one who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity and useless. So let's look at 6 through 13. Now we're going to read a whole paragraph. And again, I just encourage you to have your Bibles, especially for this paragraph. Nehemiah writes, and I was very angry when I heard their outcry, and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, will we restore these and require nothing from them? We, uh, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. 
And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So look at verse 7. The Mosaic law, as I said, forbids usury or unreasonable interest when lending to the poor and the needy. And in fact, when lending to the poor and the needy, there's a call to not even charge interest at all. You're not to be as a money lender to them. You're to give them what they need. And if they pay it back, great. In some cases, God even talks about not treating it as a loan, but rather as a gift, even, in some cases. Um, a number of years ago, we had just moved in here. And at that time, there was a, a single mother attending here. She had, I can't remember if she had two or three kids, but she was a single mother in a very difficult situation. She was working two jobs, and she just couldn't make ends meet. Every month, she was a little bit short. And she came in looking for help. And so I sat down with her. I said, here's what we do. We get all of your financial in information together. We go through it. We see what we can help with. And we did everything we could for her. But in the midst of doing that, she brought in the contract for the car that she had purchased about a year earlier. So I would argue that it's kind of hard to live in Phoenix, Arizona and not have a car if you're going to be working, especially if you're working two jobs. I mean, the city is large and, you know, God bless public transportation, but it's not going to work for everybody. In fact, it doesn't work for a majority of the people here. It just doesn't work for people. And so I think you have to have a car here if you're going to have a job or two. So she needed a car, and so what she did was she went to a dealership and she bought a car, a used car, a four-door sedan, nice little car, and I looked at the contract and the price of the car was $9,500. And then if you know, if you've ever seen, down at the bottom though, after all of the interest charges that you're going to pay over the life of the loan, which was um, five or six years, that was a 60 or 72 month loan, down at the bottom it said that she was paying $17,000 for this $9,500 car because the interest rate was something that I believe that nobody in this room would ever pay for anything. How is she going to get out of her poverty when that happens? How? I think that's a legitimate question. Okay? How do you get out of that cycle? I would argue that that system is broken. And I know, I'll get the emails and I'll have people come up, but that, we're allowed to do that. That's what you do in it. We, we have to charge them more interest so that we can offer the lost leader. I have heard all of the arguments. I get it. I understand. That's, that's the free market. I get it. Okay? I offered her the next time she was going to buy a car that I would go in with her, though, help her negotiate. Okay? But I, so I get it, okay? But I think that system is broken. It's, it's, all it did is perpetuate her, pro, her poverty. And, and I know we can't do anything about the car dealer. I get that. Especially if they don't know Jesus. Can't do anything about the car dealer. But what about us? What about us? What are our practices? How are we doing in that arena? We're God's people. We're God's people. 
Exodus 22. If you lend money to any of my people with, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Again, I, I, I want to hit this. I think this is so important to understand. These people were not waking up in the morning, and I don't believe that most people today involved in things like this wake up in the morning and they're thinking, let's go screw poor people. <laughs> let's screw them over. Let's oppress poor people. I don't think that's what's happening. I don't. But it is fair to say that they're probably saying, all right, how do I do today what's best for me? How do I do what's best for me? And so then you look in the New Testament, you look at Paul writing to Philippi, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And then he writes in verse 4, Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it's fascinating to me how many times I've heard Christian people say, See? See? We've we, we got to take care of our own interests. You're missing the point of, this, of, of the verse. You're missing the point of the verse. When your interests are commingled with somebody else's interests, especially a brother or sister in Christ, but when your interests are commingled with the interests of somebody else, your call by God, your call in the gospel is to also look out for their interests and understand that what you do with your interests, if it has a deleterious effect on their interests, that's a problem. You need to figure that out. And then you look at verse 8. Nehemiah points out the irony of the Jews being exiled for 70 years, and then they're redeemed out of the exile, but now the Jews are selling their own into slavery. That's, that's fairly ironic. The lack of self-awareness is mind-boggling. And then verse 10 has more irony. Nehemiah finds out from the outcry that, in fact, his own household had apparently been participating in these awful, awful practices. Isn't that amazing? Now, again, probably not intentionally, but that, didn't, that doesn't mean it didn't hurt the people and he's not responsible. So what does Nehemiah do when he finds this out? He not only indicts others and charges others but he also indicts himself, and he leads by example. He demonstrates humility and confession of his sin. That's what Nehemiah does. So again, here you go. This is why I appreciate the Bible. If Nehemiah were a myth or a legend, then people like Nehemiah or King David or Esther, they would be absolutely flawless. Are these people flawless in the Bible? No. The Bible's not afraid to show that. They're just like you and me. They're just like you and me, trying, fighting the good battle, trying to figure out God's will, but recognizing that we are under the curse of sin, and that's a problem. I love that the Bible is a book of reality. And then verse 11, Nehemiah says, return to them this very day. Notice the urgency to be faithful. This is a call, I think, to the church also to not be so casual about our faith. We shouldn't let our guard down. We shouldn't be caught flat-footed when it comes to the things of God. And then you look at verses 12 and 13. 
You know, shaking out the fold was a common symbolic way and saying of communicating an impending consequence. You know, shake out the fold. In this case, Nehemiah and God are saying that if you don't help the poor, your wealth and your goods will be shaken out by God. Here's how Tyler Thompson said it. He's a pastor somewhere. Um, he said it this way. Nehemiah says if we shake down the people, God will shake out the people. And consider this, too. Verse 7 tells us that this was not a private but a very public community conversation. There was a, an assembly that was gathered. So think about it this way. What does it mean to be a holy people and not just a holy person? You know, it is about us. I get it. Jesus died for you and your sins. Amen. Good news. Gospel. If you don't know Jesus, come and embrace him. Have your sins forgiven. Be reconciled to the Father. That's good news. But we also have a, a covenant with an obligation to our community as well. Are we a holy community as well? Now, these last six verses, I said, I believe were written sometime later after this crisis had been resolved. So let's look at them. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. They were employees of, of um, the king. And so as the governor, they, they had sort of the king's food allowance in Jerusalem, where people were really struggling economically. So he said, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance from the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of what? The fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. They looked forward to that 10-day cycle there. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So it's here that we find out that Nehemiah stayed in Jerusalem longer than expected. Remember in chapter 2, the king is like, how long is this going to take and when are you going to be back? Now, apparently... The king saw fit to let him stay and be governor over the people for at least 12 years. He was under the patronage of his king and was loyal to his king, yet he stayed for his people. And verse 14, consider, if he had eaten the governor's food allowance, which he was absolutely entitled to do, if he had eaten the governor's food allowance, it would have come on the backs of the taxation of those who were poor in Judah. So Nehemiah, again, is living by example. And he said the reason he did this in verse 15 was for fear of the Lord. For fear of the Lord. Paul 
tells us that it's out of reverence for Christ that we should submit to one another. The way that verse in Ephesians could be translated is out of fear of who God is and what he's done through his son, we should be able to submit to one another. It's, it's the same idea. This fear of the Lord is not necessarily that Nehemiah is walking around thinking he's going to get whacked by God. That's not it. He's thinking about who God is, their covenant together as God's person, as God's people, thinking about how gracious and faithful God is. His mercies are new every morning. And he's saying, out of that reverence and that devotion, that fear, that positive fear of who God is, that's why I'm going to do this. That's what it is. So let me just wrap up. I want to make sure that we fully understand what God wants us to see in this narrative in chapter 5. And here it is, and it'll be on the screen. This is not a call to hate the oppressor. It's so easy to just start hating the oppressor, isn't it? That's, that's not God's call. He's not saying, hey, let's hate the oppressor. But rather, it's a call to repentance and reconciliation. I don't know if you've noticed, but hating the oppressor doesn't really accomplish anything. I would argue, again, that the only way to transform an oppressor is for him or her to meet and know Jesus. And it's interesting. Think about when Jesus was on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin that he didn't have to pay and that he shouldn't have to pay because he was sinless. He's on the cross being executed, crucified, to pay the penalty for our sin, okay? Did he hate his oppressors while that was happening? He was unjustly tried. He was unjustly convicted. Did he hate his oppressors in that moment? If anyone has the right to hate their oppressors, it's Jesus. But what did he say on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. I have no idea what they're doing. Forgive them. Forgive them. We seem to have a lot of hate in this world, not enough Jesus. Is there any chance that Redemption Arcadia could be a part of reversing that trend? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for your word and its truth in this narrative that you have preserved for us of Nehemiah. And that was some tough stuff in there today, and I understand that. It's a call on everybody in this room to think about not only our relationship with you, but our call to be your people. And that's going to take courage and sacrifice and perseverance. And so I pray that we would, that Redemption Arcadia would be a people of courage and sacrifice and perseverance. I pray that uh, you would give us the power and the joy to be able to do that. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we are getting ready for, again, Every week we take communion together. Um, prior to COVID, we had wonderful sourdough bread that was cut up into little squares. And we had servers here. And people would come and take the bread off the tray and they would dip it in the wine or the juice. We had both. It's called intinction and that's how we would take the Lord's Supper together. Since COVID, we've gotten the, the kits, which most everybody's doing, 
I even had to take some of the kits out to Gilbert this past week because they don't like their kits and they thought maybe our kits would be better. None of the kits are good, I found. <laughs> so we're just trading bad kits. But um, it, one of the things that was important about the way we did communion before COVID was that it got people moving in the room and it slowed people down. And it, and it helped us to enter that time of reflection and prayer, response. It helped us to contemplate. And so a couple weeks ago, we decided, hey, let's just move the kits up to the front and, and start doing it that way again. And, and maybe this is also just kind of one of those little steps toward having communion the way we used to have it again, maybe sometime in September, I don't know, just guessing. Uh, maybe we can go back to the way we used to do communion. But what's more important than, than the actual elements themselves is what it means to us and why we do it. We get up out of our rows, going front to back. You come to the center row, and then depending on what side you're sitting on, you go to the table on your side. And when you get up and do that, what you're doing is you are confessing you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And second of all, you're celebrating that you have a Savior in Jesus and that you're aligned with Him. You've embraced Him. He's yours and you're His. And that's what we do. And this was so important to Jesus that on the, on the night that He was betrayed, when He knew He was going to the cross, He changed things up for His disciples. And He said, hey, 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 listen, and he took the bread that they were going to eat, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, and it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they had supped on the bread, then he took the cup of the wine, and he held it up, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so they drank the wine as well. And Paul reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup. We proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. It's a sacrament. It's a sacred moment. So as we sing our last two songs, when you're ready and prepared, please come forward. Get your communion kit. And thank Jesus for being your Savior.
Jesus Christ Leave behind your regrets and mistakes Come today, there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born, Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood. the name Jesus the name above every other name Jesus the only one who could ever save 
worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Thank you for being here this weekend and worshiping with us. Uh, our prayer is that this might form us as we go into the week. Um, and as we go into the week, let me read this benediction over us. This comes from 1 Thessalonians. 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We love you. We'll see you next week.